Good afternoon, ladies and gentlemen. My name is Mahir Antizari, and before I introduce our distinguished speaker today, I'd like to just say a few words about the history of the Middle East lecture series. This lecture series is organized by graduate students with the generous support of the Center for Middle Eastern Studies, the Department of History, and the Institute for Historical Studies. And also special thanks go to Kamran Agai, director of the Center for Middle Eastern Studies, as well as Brianna Medeiros, the events coordinator for the Center for Middle Eastern Studies. And also thank you all for being here today as well. Today, for the first lecture of 2013, we have the pleasure to welcome Dr. Diane Singerman, who is Associate Professor of Government and Middle Eastern Studies, as well as the co-director and co-founder of Middle Eastern Studies at the American University in Washington, D.C. Additionally, she serves as editor for several journals, including Journal for Middle Eastern <coughs> Women's Studies, Muslim <coughs> World Journal of Human Rights, and Studies in Comparative International Development. As a comparativist, Dr. Singerman's research interests focus on political change from below, particularly in the Middle East and more specifically in Egypt. Her work examines the formal and informal side of politics, gender, social movements, globalization, public space, protest, and urban politics. Her most recent edited books are Cairo Contested, Governance, Urban Space, and Global Modernity, and Cairo Cosmopolitan, Politics, Culture, and Urban Space in the New Globalized Middle East. Notably, both these edited volumes are being translated by the Ministry of Culture in Egypt into Arabic. She's also authored a monograph, Avenues of Participation, Family Politics and Networks in Urban Quarters of Cairo, as well as numerous articles and chapters and, and, and chapters in other publications, which are too, too many to mention here. But without further ado, I present to you Dr. Diane Singerman. Please welcome Thanks very much. Um, I've been experiencing the best of, of Texan hospitality here, and I'd like to thank uh, Brianna and Mahyar and Dr. Spellberg and others. It's it's incredibly uh, it's incredibly um, um, uh, uh, I've been taken good care of. So thank you very much, and I'm very happy to be here to see lots of friends and colleagues that I like very much all gathered in one place. So I'm very impressed with your program, but thanks for having me. Um, <clears throat> I'm going to talk rather quickly today, but you'll have to pardon me. I have a bad cold, so my voice might give out. That might be an issue. Um, but I, I want to talk today about uh, what is my sabbatical project. Um, uh, unlike uh, previous years, I'm engaged in a much more kind of policy-oriented focus. I'm not actually writing a book about this, but I'm engaged in a collaborative, interdisciplinary project with architects and uh, people involved in urban development in Cairo. So um, I've been in, uh, involved in kind of interdisciplinary wanderings in urban planning and urban studies and urban governance, a little bit out of my normal sort of uh, work. But it's, um, but it's, it's, it's uh, I hope you're not disappointed. It's not a talk about the revolution per se, um, but it's, it, it talks about the roots of the uprising and what we would call the shared... Um, sort of shared characteristics of a particular spatial political economy throughout the Middle East and North Africa, which I hope will perhaps explain some of the reasons behind the revolution and um, will explain and amplify the problems of neoliberalism in the Middle East and, and more particularly the urban challenges that continue to face the region. Uh, one of my edited books, Cairo Contested, talked a lot about um, contestations about land, about public space, and so I've always focused on the kind of material side of things. Um, certainly, there's, there's much more relevant and larger fights over civil and political freedoms, but there's also, at the source of these revolutions, are also very material issues, the kind of experiences that people have about trying to find things like jobs and housing, um, and also just the price of real estate and the kinds of constructions that have been going on in the region. <clears throat> so that's what I'm going to talk about. And in a way, this project tries to deal with the issues of social justice and thinking of them uh, in terms of the built environment. So the kind of problems of the built environment, 
but seen through the lens of, the, of, of social justice, which of course was a, was a, was a domineering trend and, 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 and goal of the revolution, and it continues to be, we can see that. So I want to start off with um, just talking about neoliberalism a little bit <clears throat> and some of the regional um, trends of neoliberalism throughout the region that uh, at sort, of, sort of a more global approach. And in this talk, I'm going to talk about Egypt, I'm going to talk about the Middle East, but I'm also going to talk about global examples of how, how countries and how urban populations at moments of transition after military dictatorship and authoritarianism have, have been able to grab more resources and grab more public resources in order to try to deal with questions of social justice in their communities. So I'm talking about the Middle East, I'm talking about Brazil and India, and I'm, I'm going to get back to Egypt, right? But these are just the characteristics that many of you are familiar with about neoliberalism. So throughout the region, slashing of the public sector, slashing of subsidies, the growth of the informal sector in terms of housing, in terms of employment, increased econ economic inequality, as well as high growth rates, and those things usually go together. And of course, you all know this, high youth unemployment, which I'm also going to come back to. Abusive police, uh, uh, much more resources and financial support for the security sector as opposed to the military. So you have free markets without freedoms, um, neoliberalism without citizenship, right? And we can talk <clears throat> more about this, but again, this gets at people's pockets. It's very explosive, many of these issues, whether it's subsidies or bread prices, whether it's the quality of education or the lack of transportation, um, whether it's the way in which neoliberal regimes raise money through uh, increased sales taxes because they can't, um, they can't get income taxes from the people, they reduce corporate tax rates and they rely on sort of sales tax which are disproportionately uh, affect the poor and the middle class, right? So throughout uh, neoliberalism, which was deepened in the 1990s, of course it started with Sadat in the 1970s and the Infatah, the Open Door Economic Policy, but just we have a tremendous amount of <clears throat> reduction of the public sector. Um, as Egypt becomes, tries to become, quote-unquote, a tiger on the Nile, in order to attract foreign investment, what do you have to do? Anybody? Cheap wages, right? So if Egypt is really going to sort of compete with Bangladesh or India, the call centers, et cetera, et cetera, you have to have cheap wages. There's an informalization of the labor force, um, earlier generations had a guaranteed job after high school. If you, like yourselves, graduated from college, you were guaranteed a job. That stopped happening. Um, education was subsidized. Housing was subsidized. Transportation was subsidized. So in a sense, this generation had a much smaller share of the public patrimony than their parents' generation, right? Um, and, and the way people survived, many of them, was also to leave the country in order to save money and other things. <clears throat> this is just an example of how you can see the decline of private sector, of public sector work, but the pink line is the informal private sector. So most jobs wind up in the, in the informal sector, which means they do usually do not have benefits. They are not going to get a pension when they get older. Um, this is artisanal labor, or it's small-scale labor. It's temporary labor. These are not permanent jobs. And they don't have the status of permanent jobs. So university graduates like yourselves in the afternoon would be taxi drivers or plumbers or work in the family shop. And everybody is working two or three jobs as well in order to make ends meet. So the other dimension of this that I want to talk about, this is another project, but I'm going to do this rather quickly, is, um, is to think about, as a political scientist, you want to ask the question, why youth and why now? Now there's debate about was this a revolution of the youth? And uh, some of the revolutionaries do not like that notion because it was kind of cross-class, cross-age, people joined in. But young people, as you all know, were really very important to the revolution. They were on the streets, they were fighting the battles. <clears throat> and the question is, well, why young people? And again, I talked about the public patrimony and you all have probably heard these arguments, but the Middle East, as you all know, is an incredibly youthful region. It's the most youthful region. And this is a natural demographic phenomenon. You reduce mortality rates, you improve health, 
You, um, there's a, a huge international effort to lower population growth because that's supposed to consume economic growth and sort of the time bomb. So there's all this, there's all this um, maternal and healthcare clinics that are designed to limit reproduction and, and decrease family sizes. Um, so this is called the nuptiality transition in the demographic literature, right? Interestingly, the Egyptian Human Development Report in 2010 uh, it sort of presciently is called Youth in Egypt, Building Our Future. Um, they had a different notion of what their future was than the authors of this report in some sense, right? Um, and so what's going on with the anxiety and the difficulties, the predicaments of young people that in a sense uh, might have, have been a structural or a sort of enabling argument for the other political activity and the sort of other contingent factors that, that went on. And again, so two-thirds of the population, Middle East, are under the age of 24. Um, high unemployment, places like Iran and Yemen, in Palestine, huge rates of young people, this youth bulge. The problem with the youth bulge, it's a great thing to have all the dy dynamism of young people if you have jobs for them, if they're educated. So a youth bulge is supposed to be a, ph a phenomenal sort of boost to national development. It worked very well in Korea and some other places. But if you don't have jobs for those people, and you've already educated them, because education has gone way up, primary and secondary education, um, that becomes a problem, right? So 62% of, of the population is 29 or younger. This is a... Um, a an old table from Samir Redwan, who became the Minister of Finance in the new regime. So this is from, you know, 2002, and of course, um, something like 83% of all the unemployed people in Egypt are young people. So unemployment hits young people uh, in, in much worse than it does anyone else in the population. And if you're a female young person, you are triply unemployed from male young people. Female young women have the highest unemployment rates. And at the same time, they have the lowest labor force participation rates. So they're not even participating very much in the economy. Right? So again, even um, a survey of young people that came out in 2011, I went to that conference uh, when the report came out in Cairo, 90% of unemployed Egyptians were young people. It was really interesting. There was a question about political participation and in this survey, it said how political participation in young, young people is really, really, really low. And this was December 2010. Um, it's, it's how they conceive of political participation. <laughs> <laughs> All right, so I've done a lot of other work, kind of a weird work, but it's on um, the costs of marriage. Uh, in, my, in, my, in my earlier work in Cairo, this is something that came up. I, work, I did an ethnography of a kind of a lower class community and wound up um, hearing lots of stories about how difficult it was to get married because getting married is a very ritualized and, and, and it's an economic campaign. And I won't go into it, but basically um, before the revolution, several years before the revolution, I, I did research and, and, and sort of came up with this notion of weighthood. Young people are waiting for jobs they're waiting to get married, and they're waiting to become politically engaged. Now, what is this based on? It's based on surveys about the economic costs of marriage. Um, and again, this is just the, the, the sort of bare bones of the argument. I can talk a lot more about it if you want to. But the idea is that 73% of men over the age of 25 are unmarried, even in rural areas. 57% of the men over the age of 25. Now, why does this matter? Uh, marriage is supposed to be a kind of a universal norm. In Egypt, you are considered an adult when you marry. People expect you to marry. Um, and, and basically, intimate relations outside of marriage are not condoned. So well, Egypt has the latest age at marriage for men outside of China. Mm. And for women... Um, it's not the latest, but, it's, but it's, it's delayed marriage. It's gotten more delayed. And now, a lot of people would suggest that for women, that's great. We're no longer having teenage marriages, and we're, in, we're, we're sort of raising the status of women. But the, the unintended consequences of this 
is that you can't get married unless you have $6,000 in the national average, and it takes a tremendous long time for people to save money to marry. The groom and the groom side spend 75% of the cost, pays for 75% of the cost of marriage. The bride and the bride side, just 25%. So there's tremendous economic pressure on young men. They don't have money, they don't get married. Um, and if you go to the Gulf and you come back with lots of money, you get married in a week or maybe a week and a half, right? <clears throat> now, how does this relate to, to um, the built environment? Housing and furnishings are two-thirds of the marriage costs. And until recently, there were no mortgages in Egypt, and you have to have 100% of the cash on the barrel head to get an apartment, right? Um, so weighthood is this kind of liminal adolescence. Everybody lives at home. Everybody lives at home except for about four people unless they are married, right? And so, so young people are sort of trying to, in, trying to negotiate this thing. Um, Roxanne Varzi, who writes on Iran, says that young people live in two different realities. They're just trying to do the right thing. They're trying to get their educated. They've done the right thing. But economically, it takes a lot of time to save for the costs of marriage. And their parents are also contributing, and so their parents also have, continue to have a role in who they marry. So, and again, so, so young people are caught in this, in this weighthood, right? And, and, you know, we can argue about this, but it's, it's sort of a, it's sort of a, I think, a, a kind of contributing factor, and I don't mean to be crudely reductionist and suggest this is why there was a revolution. It's just an argument about the kind of circumstances of why young people in particular were motivated and took those kind of risks. Why, why their predicament was worse than others, perhaps. And, and obviously, things, are, things, are, things changed in a sense. And just, just really briefly, youth unemployment is even worse now in the region. It's, it's, it's much worse, and there's fewer opportunities, and it's, it's just a, a tremendous struggle, tremendous financial and economic challenges for all of these countries. Um, so, um, again, sort of unemployment is about about sort of new job creation for the young, right? So back to kind of neoliberalism and the built environment and this project that I'm engaged in. So from an economy where most people are working for the public sector, now we have an economy where 60% of the workers are in the informal sector. And they're not, they don't receive the same protections, the pensions, the health care, minimalist as they are, they still matter. 80% of all new housing in Cairo is, is built informally. What that means, it's unzoned, perhaps built on illegal agricultural land, not illegal, illegally on agricultural land, which is against the law, and you're prosecuted by the military if you build on agricultural land, or it's unzoned. So throughout the greater Cairo region, there are millions and millions of people who live in these new uh, informal sector housing. Some people call it, they're not slums, they're affordable housing. Uh, some, there's extreme poverty in some of them, but there's a range of classes in them as well. Now, where did these, these it's, it's the Egyptian government also started to pay attention to the informal sector, which are called ashwiyat, random areas. When the Islamists started causing trouble and they lived in these areas, um, so in Inbaba, when the Sheikh Gaber takes over the Islamic group and sort of resists and starts to build um, an Islamist organization, all of a sudden the government notices and notices that there's millions of, of these houses that have been built all over the place. And at the same time that you have this massive expansion of an informal sector housing, and again, I should mention, a lot of the infrastructure is not provided by the state. Sometimes the most basic is but these communities are bearing the costs of hooking their houses up to the electricity, of building roads, of building private transportation networks, of building sewage. And so the sort of infrastructure is, is really problematic in a lot of these areas. And frankly, a lot of donor money, Egyptian government money, has gone into upgrading these areas, right? At the same time, there is this discourse of these poor, uncivilized rural kind of areas. 
and the, and the government sort of demonizes these areas and everybody who lives in them, especially when the Islamists are active, right? So, you know, this area is on one part of Cairo and there's a river and then there's the informal sector areas and all of a sudden those people are sort of, in a sense, they're, they're very much kind of the other, the, 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 the sort of rural, uncivilized masses that are a threat and, and people talk about them. They talk about the ways in which the informal sector is like a cancer that's growing and, and, and sort of in, in that sort of way. So the same time that you have the informal sector, you have neoliberal, um, this is the World Trade Center. Um, you have gated communities that are just proliferating. You have a policy of the government building new cities in the desert, supposedly to deal with the congestion of Cairo. Um, you know, you have uh, these kind of uh, sort of massive constructions of, 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 of green, of, of sidewalks, this kind of suburban American model, the L.A. kind of gated community model. And of course, these days, most people from the Ministry of Housing at the highest level are in jail because they also sold off the land for these areas at very reduced rates, right? So the, 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 the high modernist planning of the Sadat government and the Mubarak government was to build new cities in the desert, um, you know, 44 of them. The problem with those cities, you know, they also attracted foreign investment and what we would call franchise capitalism around some of those cities, but there are no jobs. Egyptians have intense and dense social networks with their families. People are very involved in the extended family. And these areas are like an hour and a half for two hours. And with the, with the traffic these days, they're, they're sort of, they're segregated. They're cut off from people's social capital. And there's no jobs. And they're built in this very kind of Soviet-style, you know, block architecture. And the idea is we're going to, like, conquer the desert. Right? We can overcome this. And what this really means, it's crony capitalism. It's tremendous amounts of real estate speculation. So you flip the real estate that you have. Egyptians invest in real estate more than they do anything else. Right? And, and because everybody is planning for their kid's marriage, there's like 3.5 million vacant apartments in Egypt. So people save their apartments and you save for your apartment. So, so if you're a good parent, you have a couple of flats for your kids. And you start that. It's like in, in our country, when, when your parents have saved for your college education so that you could be here, the same thing goes on in Egypt vis-a-vis -vis marriage and people saving for marriage. Right? So you have, again, you have these kinds of swank places. Um, and then you, of course, have informal sector areas. Most of Cairo looks like it's still being built because people build on to houses when they have more money, uh, build extra rooms for extended family living. Um, not a lot of streets, buildings incredibly close to each other. Sometimes there's a flyover when the places get so big, the flyer go flyover goes like five feet away from people's apartment buildings, right? Because it's so dense, there's no public space, right? It's, it's hard to actually put in government schools and things like that. So during this period of neoliberalism, you have growing inequality of the built environment. Not that this doesn't happen everywhere, and this is not sort of something that's unfortunately a little bit normal. But one of the things in, in Cairo, at least, is that one could argue that there was a lot of economic heterogeneity in neighborhoods. Um, the Boabs lived on the bottom floor. S stores are in the first floor of every building. The, the, even rich neighborhoods, it was kind of mixed. Now you have the segregation where people go out to the gated communities and, and they, 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 they isolate themselves. And there's this whole, what Eric Denis has called the security risk discourse. Cairo's dirty, Cairo's chaotic, Cairo's full of Islamists, and we're going to create this utopian paradise with golf courts and, and um, kindergartens and things like that. <clears throat> right? Um, so there's this, there's, this, there's this disparity. At the same time, this is not just, this is also government policy. And, and, and we, have to, we have to really pay attention to where the government puts its resources, right? 
So Gamal Mubarak, the sort of reformer of the National Democratic Party and the son of Mubarak, was in charge of the vision for Cairo uh, down the road. And if people who know Cairo, this is parts of Mbaba. So this is the Cairo 2050 plan to build, to, to sort of economically build along the river, around the Nile, um, build skyscrapers, right? The only reason I have this slide is because it was presented at a, at a urban planning conference in Stuttgart, Germany. It was never presented publicly in Cairo. It was never vetted publicly in Cairo. It was never deliberated publicly in Cairo. And this is the road to the pyramids that was going to be built, this huge, wide boulevard of kind of monumentalism and high modernism, right? And then if we look at this area, this is the Google map of how densely populated that area is. It's basically Faisal and Bulaq al-Dakhur, which is incredibly densely populated. So you're going to basically move in forcible removals all of those people from those neighborhoods to create this kind of monumental sort of vision of the city. At the same time, many informal areas uh, experience these massive... Uh, what are they called? Duea, um, like uh, um, a lot of people getting killed <laughs> because of bad construction. Uh, in Duea, there's, there's basically cliffs. There was a lot of building. All these cliffs came down on people's houses. So the way that the government dealt with some of these problems, uh, like in 2009 or so, was to deal with sort of creating safe and unsafe areas. And it's sort of like a depoliticization and a kind of a technical way of dealing with some of these informal areas. So they would declare parts of the city safe and other parts unsafe as a way of supposedly protecting residents. And then they would, they would have forced removals and they would move people to public sector places. But again, it's in a very sort of apolitical way. So we can think about neoliberalism from the sky. This is a term of a colleague of mine, Agnès de Boulay, of the, the way that neoliberalism sort of spatially reconstructs and reconfigures Cairo and the way people live. And so, you know, Starbucks or cilantro cafes or master plans, like why do people get upset about that sort of thing? Um, and again, also tourism is an important part of the informal, of, sorry, of neoliberalism. Tourism is a huge um, producer of foreign exchange. Um, something like, I think it's 8 million tourist nights a year in Egypt. Uh, someone once said about a third of the workforce somehow is connected to tourism, which I don't really believe, but it's, it's a huge industry. So do you try to make a kind of a world heritage site and make, uh, make these uh, areas look sort of um, the, the vision of the sort of orientalist vision, and why do people get upset about that kind of thing? There's a tremendous amount of fencing in of public areas before the revolution, of moving Sufi, Sufi mulids that have been there for a very long time and further sort of restricting their activities because the government was so afraid of any kind of collective action. Even when it wasn't action, it was just a collective experience. So mulids became threatening after a while. So <clears throat> um, this project that I'm engaged in, sort of how do you undo neoliberalism? rather than just critique it all the time and not to be so knee-jerk about it. But what would it look like if you, you thought seriously about social justice in the built environment? So that's something that I'm trying to do with my collaborators in Egypt. So what's the alternative to this kind of financial conjuring in the desert? How do you democratize planning? Um, how do you think about um, these communities and valuing the assets in the community? Uh, understanding these communities as, as places that can, that can grow and that can develop, and how do you develop public policies that are more deliberative, that are more participatory, right? And here I kind of turn towards regional models. Oh, sorry, just this last thing is that, of course, a lot of this is, is regional, right? So we have, we were talking about Morocco when I talked to the um, history graduate students, right? So again, Morocco is a huge plan to ex extend tourism. And a lot of these gated communities, they start as tourist villages, and then they're sort of normalized into, into upper-class housing. So 
excuse me, so I've kind of looked at some of the global possibilities. What happens when you have a socially mobilized, politically mobilized population after the end of a dictatorship or after the end of authoritarian regimes? How have some other countries dealt with um, trying to keep that movement together and mobilized, but also to change things, to actually reform things, right? Um, movements, social movements, they need, they need resources. How are they going to survive? They need legitimacy, etc. And actually, one of the things I tried to do was to sort of think about Egypt comparatively, right? Lots of countries have experienced dictatorship, authoritarianism, lots of inequality, housing segregation. And so thinking about South Africa, Latin America, and the Arab Spring, right? And if we look at some of these indicators, it's interesting, Brazil and Egypt have fairly similar literacy rates after the fall of dictatorships, right? If you look at Brazil and Egypt, interestingly, Brazil in 1985 was quite similar economically, GNP per capita, to Egypt. Brazil is, 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 is much richer than Egypt is these days. But after the, the military dictatorship ended in Brazil, it was... It was sort of similar to where Egypt is now, right? Um, so in Latin America, um, I would argue that social movements turn towards localism, to the local level, to maintain their, their um, to, to promote social justice, but also to maintain their constituencies, right? And in some of these countries like Brazil, unlike Chile and Argentina, in Brazil apparently, the military were still in power after the fall of the military. The parliament was dominated by very wealthy interests, by landed interests. So, so they had tremendous challenges as well. But what leftist parties did in Latin America was again to sort of make arguments about devolving state power down to the local level in, in order to try to deal with clientelism and, and, and uh, patronage in their own parties to make, um, to sort of promote participatory democracy, um, to also reinvigorate civil society, right? Um, they promoted things like the social right to property, um, collective rights to the city, the right to the city. Brazil started a ministry of the cities, right? And they also, um, in, in South Africa, they used the constitution to try to change, uh, South Africa, of course, had tremendous, tremendous racial inequality in its cities, in its housing, in all kinds of ways. Um, they had to integrate the white townships with black townships, and the, obviously they're just tremendously different sort of worlds. Um, but again, the, the idea is, 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 um, is that there, there are some examples and there are some ideas that maybe are sort of relevant to the Middle East. Maybe not, right? The Brazilian constitution, um, it allowed for people to write a law if they got enough signatures to put it before parliament, right? Uh, the Brazilian constitution of 1988. Um, they created uh, an urban reform grassroots amendment about the right to the city. And the notion of the social function of the city means that sometimes develop, you, you would trade rights for developers for plots of land. You would, would, you would make arguments that, that, that uh, real estate interests had, had limited, that you would try to control that. And there were deals that were made in order to regularize tenure, in order to create public spaces and cities and things like that, right? <clears throat> um, and you might say that this kind of, you know, okay, so the experience of the Egyptian constitution making was not such a successful one, which I'll get to in a minute. But actually there is a tradition in the Middle East of these petition campaigns. You know, we are all Khalid Said is one of them, a social media campaign. But also in Morocco and in Iran, the One Million Signatures campaign to reform personal status rights also was influential, maybe not successful, but in Morocco it was very important. So these kind of initiatives from below might have some legs in the Middle East, more than people think. And again, you can argue that what is revolution about? You know, in the sort of French Revolution was about property rights. And in some sense, a lot of people argue in the 21st century 
um, you know, the ideas that individual rights, individual property rights have to be restricted in some ways for some kind of social function, although that's a very, not a very popular um, notion in the United States and, and elsewhere. It's not, it's not an argument about socialism. It's an argument about limits to, to, to capital, basically, and, and the public interest. What is the public interest? Right, so, okay, so in Brazil, the other thing that they did, which was very important, is they had participatory master plans. Every city over 20,000 had a participatory planning process that was tied to some economic um, incentives, right? There was land regularization that was, that, was, that was started. And also, many of you have probably heard of participatory budgeting exercises, right, where, where, where people deliberate over a long period of time and decide about the priorities of certain projects and, and, and how to fund them. A lot of people argue this, in, this improves the services, government responsiveness, etc. And these are quite complicated procedures where lots of people participate over a long period of time, right? Um, so over 100 municipalities uh, started, this started in Porto Alegre in Brazil. Uh, the Workers' Party, the leftist party, did this as a way of building its constituency. And who is in power in Brazil these days? Jason? The Workers' Party, right? President Lulu is from the Workers' Party. They run Brazil these days, okay? And so this was also a way of increasing their electoral strength. This is not just altruism. This is a way of building a constituency. And they did it across Brazil, right? They started a ministry of cities. And, and this also allows for cross-class collaboration so that the professionals in these communities, the lawyers, the architects, the teachers are very engaged in this. In Kerala, India, which of course has a, has a, has a Marxist tradition, but there was a, a single act of participatory budgeting. So there are 12,000 task forces, 120,000 members, 2.5 million people participate in 100,000 projects, right? Um, and, and lots of volunteers. So again, it sort, of, it sort of tamps down sort of class conflict in some ways. Participatory budgeting from Latin America has spread all over the world to Chicago, Illinois. Anyone here from Chicago? You heard of Joe Moore from uh, Rogers Park? Um, apparently, Chicago aldermen get like a million dollars in, they call it uh, menu money for infrastructure projects. So he did a participatory budgeting experience in Chicago. And he, the people, citizens, decided in this deliberative process about how to spend the money and where they wanted to spend the money. So they got very involved in, in local politics. This is spreading to New York City, other places as well. Um, Brazilians also did these public policy conferences uh, on all kinds of issues. They brought people together, NGO forums, etc. Um, so so is, is any of this possible in Egypt? Does it matter? Is it relevant? Um, and again, in Egypt, there is a problem in the sense that there's so much protest now. There's so much mobilization. Um, you know, people are very, very good at, at uh, protest now. But we would argue a lot of people are not paying enough attention to the state. That, that people need to reform the state. That people need to deal with the state. That people need to make demands on the state. People need to reform the state. There's hundreds of thousands of the same exact people working for the government. And a lot of that needs to change. And protest is, 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 is useful. It's important, obviously. But we're not just talking about bringing down governments. We're talking about building up governments and creating new governments. You know, in East Germany, after the Berlin Wall came down, like 100,000 Stasi policemen got <coughs> fired from their jobs. They just fired like tens of thousands of policemen from the East German security state. And they hired some after re-education project, but they just decimated it, right? That kind of thing needs to happen throughout the Middle East, right? So um, massive protests, a tremendous amount. I mean, one of the most examples of, of uh, the best examples of the networks, of, of the capacity of Egyptians to mobilize is Ligan Shabia after the police withdrew in Egypt where overnight, not even overnight, within a couple of hours, all kinds of neighborhoods had formed these committees, these, com these committees to protect the streets. So the guys in Mahdi had their like golf clubs out and they were like, you know, protecting their neighborhoods and other people in other ways. And it was, it was, it was instantaneous and fairly effective. 
And some of those committees have, have, have survived and are trying to take on a kind of a local political role. Um, everybody's making demands. There's strikes everywhere. Um, you know, people are, are want things to change. Um, um, there's examples of what we would call do-it-yourself governance. For example, in Matandia, the ring road split an informal community into two. So during the revolution, right after the revolution, nobody was working. They decided to build their own exit and entrance ramp from the highway. They raised a million dollars from the community, the same guys who built the exit ramps, and they built their own exit and entrance ramp because their community, it took two hours to get around to the other side of their community. Right? And they invited government officials. They built a little like reception room. Right? Now, you could say this is like good or bad, but actually it's subsidizing the government. This is just, this is private resources extracted to do the sorts of things that the government should do. They also put signs and they, they, they named their neighborhood. They put signage throughout their neighborhood that we're here, we're a neighborhood just like everywhere else, and that's also a, a big thing. So now, okay, the new government, the Freedom and Justice Party, the Muslim Brothers, neoliberalism minus corruption. So more ethical neoliberalism, right? It's only corruption. Um, if you look at the economic policies of the, of the Freedom and Justice Party, they're very similar to the old regime. The sort of paradigm is still there, but people should volunteer. People should be good kind of citizens, right? And so the, one, of the first, one of the first kind of major initiatives of, of, the, of Morsi was this renaissance project where people should go out and clean the streets themselves and volunteer and volunteerism. Um, but again, is that about reforming the state? It, you know, it, sort of, it sort of lasted about a week or so. You know, because it's not a way, it's, it's, it's not really utilizing the capacity of the state. And of course, we, we, we have it in a sort of gendered volunteerism, so they, they, they don't picture the, this is, I think, from some Salafi newspaper, without the faces of women, because we wouldn't want to be immodest. All right, so again, the kind of, the government is, it's the same paradigm, building more new cities in the desert, affordable housing, but they're still in the desert, sort of demonizing the poor, and some of the same planning processes. And people are resisting. There's all kinds of initiatives going on. So for example, as there are blackouts in Cairo over the summer, there's an organization, we're not, we're not paying, right? We're not paying. Um, there, were, there, were, there were people who used open source mapping to map where the electricity cuts were to show the inequities about which neighborhoods got light and which didn't. Um, and again, this is spreading to the provinces. This is not just Cairo. Uh, one village in um, Dalia is like, they're not, they're not paying their taxes anymore. They get no government services. The water is brown. It's not healthy. They're not paying their taxes anymore. This is not Cairo, right? This is throughout the country. So people are, are, are upset. Um, during some of, one of the blackouts, one woman died in the metro of, a, of an attack of some kind. And, and so there are protests about that. There's a lot of um, humor about that as well. Because, of course, why should people pay their taxes if there's no electricity anymore? Right? Um, so there's monitoring of public services, demands for access to information, for rights to information. Apparently, some of the, some of the deals with the World Bank and the IMF... Uh, are, are faltering because the Egyptians will not sign a right to information law that the Tunisians actually did sign. Um, it's very hard to, for citizen groups to reform things if they have no information. Um, it's kind of maybe ridiculous for me to talk about participatory budgeting when the budgets are not public. How do you have participatory budgeting when the government doesn't even issue the budgets and there's very little information about the budgets? Right? So people have to make demands. So this, um, <clears throat> I'll kind of close this by sort of arguing that there needs to be a new urban agenda in Egypt. Um, that one of the most important parts of this is local government. What happens with local government? Actually, the democratization literature, it's all about constitutions and elections, the national level. Um, very little 
um, concern about local government. And local government in Egypt is a place for the military to retire to. Um, it's, um, it's, it gets extremely little money. It has very little uh, capability to raise local taxes. Very little, almost 80% of the budgets of the local councils are salaries from national ministries. Um, the sort of towns having a local government, counties having a local government, Egypt, as you know, is incredibly centralized, and there have been calls for decentralization. The West has pushed decentralization, but a lot of that is fiscal decentralization, not de democratic decentralization. Right? So Egypt spends a lot less than most other countries on local government, the lowest paid salaries, the worst services. And so if people want to do things that are very normal, like fix a pothole or get new lighting, it's like the they have to go to the national minister. I mean, it's, it's a, it's, there's no devolved local power, right? And these are all examples of how little money goes to the local level. Um, so what we're talking about is kind of building a counter-narrative of in-situ development, developing people in place, not moving them into the desert, trying to sort of um, recognize and acknowledge local initiatives and local solutions and not one universal understanding of, 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 of housing, moving from a kind of a city for the few to a city for, for all, right? To put public money where people live, to put public resources where most of the people live as opposed to um, upper-class housing. Um, and again, these days the Egyptian government is incredibly weak. Uh, doesn't have a lot of money, and so it's going to need to build a lot more partnerships. It's going to need to acknowledge and, and, and try to deal with the resources of more people. It needs citizen deliberation. People are very angry. They continue to be angry. And so in that sense, the, the government needs to build more invited spaces. They need, to, they need to invite the people into the police stations. They need to invite the people into changing and deliberating about the state. They need to uh, demand that, that public policies are, are vetted. Now, you might all say this is, should be done through a legislature, through elected representatives. We do not have a legislature. We only have the Shura Council at the moment. But, but this is also a kind of a tactical, maybe rhetorical sort of thing in order to try to um, build more spaces for deliberation. And that moves beyond representation or in addition to representation, right? Um, again, some of this deliberation, um, I went to a, a panel on decentralization at the American University in Cairo in November, and there was a woman there from the provinces who said, we should not have to go to Tahrir Square every time we have a problem, right? We should be able to kind of resolve issues at the local level. We shouldn't have to all go to Tahrir. There should be other ways to solve problems. And so that's what we're talking about. The right to the city is a sort of a notion of a, of, a, of a handful of rights, social and economic rights, um, some of which are in, some of them, in the Egyptian constitution, um, that at least in terms of an agenda, putting forth these ideas, kind of adding to the notion of, of individual rights and civil and, 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 and political rights, and actually sort of, a lot, sorry, when the, when um, for many years when a human rights agenda, when civil and political rights were promoted in Egypt and the Middle East, a lot of people would critique them and they would talk about economic and social rights. Um, a lot of those economic and social rights are still extremely weak and they, they need to be sort of promoted more. The right to public space, the right to demonstrate, the right to have public space, um, and, and, and really this is about sort of the everybody having kind of the right to the city. Um, constitutionally, this is, this is one way of, 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 of getting some of these ideas. In South Africa, again, there were certain um, uh, sort of propositions put forward to deal with some of these issues. Um, you, we can look, and that's something we've done, is, is to look at constitutions from across the globe to see what kind of rights to the city they actually offer. Uh, many constitutions offer very good things, but of course they don't implement those things. So constitutions are just part of it. And even if there is a constitution, the question is how do you, how do you make those things happen? 
So people are upset about the Egyptian constitution, which um, really basically kept the same system of local administration in place. Um, it was incredibly weak about local politics. Um, local uh, people's councils have a, a little bit more power, but not much. And supposedly these changes are only going to happen over 10 years. Um, some of the parts of the Egyptian constitution do. Article 67 now says adequate housing, clean water, and healthy food are given rights in Egypt. There's a national housing plan. Its basis is social justice. This is in the new constitution. Guarantees children shelter. Um, people with disabilities, health, economic, and social care. Maternal and child health. Uh, in the kind of gendered notion of Article 10, right? And special care and protection to female breadwinners, women and widows. Men don't get so much protection. So anyway, that's a different topic. So again, there's parts of the Constitution which are better than they used to be, parts that are, that are worse. But this project, again, looks at kind of claims spaces um, and, and tries to make arguments about improving, enhancing local government, which... It's not just about urban Egypt, but it's about the entire country. And certainly there are all kinds of civil society organizations that are engaged in some of these issues, human rights groups, housing rights groups, who are, have been actively involved in these issues, but we are also trying to, um, trying to maybe sort of join some of those forces. How can we take what already exists and provide policies like incremental housing, building incrementally and having, having policies that, that work in that way? This picture, you can see the metal rods sticking up. This is what much of Cairo looks like because, again, people are constantly building incrementally when they have money. So what would it look like for a state policy to, to support that and to enable that as opposed to building these new cities in the, in the desert? Why don't we have mayors? Why don't we have a mayor in Cairo or in Alexandria? Right? Um, local level politics is a way for people to learn um, to become political leaders. You know, in the United States, how many people started out as school board members and local political, you know. So we have Ahmadinejad was a successful mayor. Erdogan was a successful mayor, Istanbul. Um, you know, it, it, it's a way of upward political mobility. And it's amazing that we have a city like Cairo, and, and, and it has millions of people in the same administrative unit and no very little local deliberation. So basically that is what I'm talking about, a sort of new urban agenda. Our project is called the Cairo Urban Solidarity Initiative. And again, it's not, it's not a book that I'm producing, but we are trying to kind of politicize urban planning and politicize these issues and, um, and, and, and sort of raise, raise issues uh, in the policy world to perhaps, uh, you know, try to change some of this stuff. So I'll stop there. Thank you.